Um, Thunder Alley, thank you so very much uh, for live worship. And Toby, what a voice. But Alley, thank you so very much for being sensitive to the Holy Spirit because you had no idea what I was going to preach on today. And that last song, there's one line in that last song, how I learned to trust in Him. And we do that, do we not? And we're going to be speaking in part to that today. So please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be uh, examining verses 12 through 19. And this is going to finish up the sub-theme of suffering for Christ. Remember, we are to live holy lives in a hostile and evil world and at times, we will face suffering. And so Peter is going to conclude, your Bibles may identify this segment of Scripture as suffering as a Christian. But uh, my message this morning is, while in the midst of suffering, we are to trust our souls to the faithful hands of the Father. And that comes from the last verse in our text this morning. So please stand so we can read God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. I guess I shouldn't have had you sit, but that's okay. We're, we're, we're getting this down. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a meddler. If Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will be the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Heavenly Father, we have heard your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would now minister to our hearts what this text is saying. So that, Father, not only can we understand it, not only that we can grow in our faith by knowing it, but that we can be empowered to live it. For, Father, persecution is coming against your church at various levels and various places in the world. Father, let us prepare ourselves for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. There is a misnomer within the church today in some segments. There's even a false gospel that's being preached in some churches that states that Christians, by virtue of being saved, 
through Jesus Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit, shall never suffer. Or they can overcome the suffering of the world and therefore not have to deal with the difficulties that others deal with because of God's favor, because of God's grace. This is not only false, but it's a false doctrine. Suffering is as much a part of the Christian experience as are the blessings from God. Now within suffering, there is the suffering we face due to sin in the world, which is a consequence of sin in the world. But then there's a suffering that we face because our alignment and our profession in Christ, and that is oppositional suffering that we face. And this morning, Peter is talking about oppositional suffering, persecution by virtue of being a follower of Christ. And Peter has an encouragement in the text that we have. And the first one is that we should not be surprised when that persecution comes. And the reason is, is because we know what Jesus already said. In John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. I actually found that wanted poster online. They were serious. You know why the world hates Jesus and hates those who follow him? It's because the world is fallen. It is corrupted. That happened at the garden. And it will stand against anything that attempts to redeem it because it is instinctively evil. And being an ambassador of Christ, you're in the crosshairs because of the cross. Not only is Peter stating the obvious, if it has ever escaped you, I hope it hasn't, but he's also encouraging them because this suffering does something. It does something to you, in you, and through you. It's not just suffering for suffering's sake or sorrow for sorrow's sake. It produces something if you allow it. Because it tests us, as the Scripture says. James 1.3 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We hear this verse a lot, don't we? It's probably on a plaque or on a t-shirt or whatever. Right? This is not a verse that you're going, wow, I never knew that was in the Bible. You probably heard it several times from me and from others who preach from this pulpit. But do we understand it? Do we understand it? That suffering has to come in in order to test us. Right? Our faith must be tested to be proved, to be tempered, thus making it strong and able to endure the suffering we will face. In fact, testing of our faith does four things. First of all, it measures how strong our faith is. Yes, we get a portion of faith to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to add to our faith by hearing and studying the Word of God and it allowing it to be tested. It's an exercise of faith. 
Like that, 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 like that verse, we learn to trust in the Lord. We learn to trust in the Lord, which produces faith in us, a strong faith. Any person's faith can be measured by how much he is willing to sacrifice to bear it. That's why I get excited when trials come in my life. Not like giddy, like running up and down the aisles like some slap-happy dude. But inside, I'm like, Lord, this is tough. This is hard. I don't like it. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? But deep inside is like, praise the Lord because something is going to happen. He's going to do something. He's going to show me something. He's never not done that. So on the outside, I look miserable. On the inside, it's like, can't wait to see what God's going to do. Because he always does. Secondly, it deepens our trust and dependency on God. That's what your testing of faith does. When your faith is tested, where do you run? To the world? To God. One of the purposes of suffering for Christ is to align ourselves fully with Christ and place our full dependency upon the Father, as Christ did. More on that in just a few minutes. Thirdly, it strengthens our patience and endurance. Suffering, you know, we live in an instantaneous society where we want suffering done with now. Get the work over with now. Come on. I don't want a lengthy trial. I want one, you know, one of those 30-minute trials, right, where I get the lesson and I move on. Why? Because that's how we are in society. We only read headlines when we're on our phones. We don't want to read the article. And they got that. They understand that. That's why the headlines don't always match what the article is saying. Because we're instantaneous. We want to know. We don't want to learn patience. Who has time for that? We need to. It's not a quick process. Because suffering can last for a long period of time, depending on what is going on in our lives and the persecution that we face. Prolonged suffering tempers our resolve and our patience. And it gives us the endurance to fight and face it. That's what James is saying in chapter 1, verse 3. Finally, testing of our faith projects a great witness. This is how the early church grew. People were watching the early church being persecuted. How are they going to handle that? How are they going to deal with that? And when they seen them stand with a resolve of strength and faith in the Lord... Even in the midst of losing their homes, even in the midst of losing their jobs, even in the midst of being beaten, even in the midst of being taken to the Colosseum for a blood sport, it was their stand in faith and their resolve. Maybe there's something in those people that's true. If you're going through a trial right now, if you're going through something that's testing your faith right now, I guarantee you somebody in the world is watching you. How are they going to deal with it? I want to see if this God can do what that person says he can do. And when he does, and you stand firm, and you persevere, guess what? They're going to come and talk to you. I've seen you. Go through that. How? 
You can't have a more open door than that. Because they want to know. They want to see. And so it's a great witness. So when we face trials and suffering because of our union with Christ, don't be surprised by it. Don't be shocked by it. Rejoice in it. And remember that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. It's going to happen. You need to be prepared for it. But remember also what Romans 8.28 says, And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. He's got a purpose for it, and He's going to work it out for good. That's not a statement. That's just not a verse to remember or put on... That's a promise. That's a promise. And so when we do face this, what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to rejoice. In fact, in this verse, in verse 13, he says that we are to rejoice for two reasons. And I think it's, but before I get to those two reasons, I want to I define what joy is because sometimes we confuse joy with happiness. Happiness is an emotion. Joy is a deep-seated assurance. Happiness comes from an external stimulant. Joy comes from an internal assurance of God. You can get a new car and be happy until the first payment comes, <laughs> an insurance bill, or the first ding, or the first scratch. Now you're not so happy. Joy transcends that because your trust, in fact, let me just get to the definition. Joy is defined as a deep-seated assurance by way of the Holy Spirit. That's key. That's key. That we are God's through Jesus Christ and that He is aware, understands, and complete control of our lives. For your lives are not your own, it were purchased at a price, which was the price of Christ, the blood of Christ. And it gives us confidence to live this life even in the midst of trials and suffering because He loves you and He keeps you. Never, ever, ever go into a trial, tribulation, or a suffering and think that God has abandoned you. That is not the voice of God. That is the voice of the opposition. Because he would love no more than tell you that. For you to throw your hands up in the air and say, I can't do this. And so Peter says that we are to rejoice first because we are sharing in Christ's suffering. That's the first reason. Paul even addressed this when he said in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering. Becoming like him in his death. Hmm. Why does Peter and Paul say that we are to share in Christ's suffering? Why is that necessary? I don't know if you're like me when I read stuff like that. I'm like, but, but, but why? God always has the answer. From the early stages of Christ's ministry, what did he say? He said, follow me. He said, follow me. Throughout his ministry, Christ continually provided an example to those who followed him. He showed them an example of how to pray. 
He showed him an example of how to live. He showed him an example of how to serve, how to minister, and how to love others. We should never want for an example in the Word of God as to what He has called us to do because He is the example. He also gave us an example of suffering. Two weeks ago I said that Christ had to suffer for the redemption of man. And in that suffering gave us an example that we are to share in those same sufferings in order to draw us closer to Him. To align us to Him. To center us in Him. And deepen our faith in Him. But it also separates us unto Him. It separates us from the world. Suffering does. Suffering also separates us from ourselves because we have a selfish nature that wants what it wants. It doesn't like suffering. And it separates us unto Christ. The reason Paul said what he said in Philippians is because he wanted nothing but Christ in his mind. He wanted nothing but Christ in his heart. He wanted nothing but Christ in his soul, and he wanted nothing more than to project the image of Christ in his life. He was sold out for Jesus. And so when Peter and Paul and the other disciples suffered as Christ suffered, it revealed Christ in them. And for that they rejoiced as we should. Remember, suffering brings to the surface not only that which we are to be separated from, but what we are to be separated to. And so when you're going through suffering, Lord, what is it that I need to release to you? And how then will you draw me closer to you? <coughs> Secondly, we are to rejoice when His glory is revealed. Now, there are two elements to this. The first speaks of a spirit of glory and of God resting upon those who suffer for Christ, where the believer is given a special anointing by the Holy Spirit to endure the intense suffering that they're facing. A good example of this is found in Acts, where we see Stephen, who is one of the first deacons, and we find how he responds. Remember, he was brought in before the council to ask, why is he doing what he's doing? And they were hostile to him, and they brought false witnesses against him because what he was saying was not false. And so they brought false witnesses saying, oh, he's blaspheming Moses. He's blaspheming the law. This guy's, we got to stone him right here. And so he gave a dissertation of what God's word taught from the Old Testament, reminded them all of how they're in error. This is what happened. Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged, the council. And they ground their teeth to him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, again key, the anointing, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of the God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out into the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. 
You might have heard of him. He later became Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Sound familiar? Should. He was following the example of Christ on the cross. Stephen was given a special anointing of the glory of God. Some call it the Shekinah glory of God, where the glory of God rested upon him. And that's what the Holy Spirit promises he will do. He will give you the words to say, and he'll give you the strength to endure, as he did with Stephen. The second speaks of the glory as to his return from the Lord. And this is something every believer anxiously awaits, don't we? Right? Again, as I stated earlier, the purpose of suffering is, for a per is to prepare us for his eventual return, for his glorious return. And as believers in Christ, our focus is on that return. It motivates what we do. It prioritizes what we do in everything, in every aspect of our life, or it should. I know it's cliched to say it. He's closer now than ever before. If you look at the world, man, it's got to be close. And because we know he's coming again, and our lives are secure in His hands. It gives us great joy knowing what we are going through cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Paul said that in Romans. And so we are to rejoice because His glory will be revealed in us. And we are to rejoice because of His glorious return is going to validate who we are in Christ Romans 8 says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified in Him. Now when we do suffer, it says we're blessed. And why are we blessed? Because the Spirit of glory rests upon you. Verse 14 is one of the great validator verses of your faith in Christ. If the world has not come against you in some way, shape, or form, whether it's persecution like our brothers and sisters in the Sudan and other hostile areas that is hostile to the gospel, or persecution in the U.S. by somebody saying some vile things about you, lies about you, or labels you, or is harsh to you, if that's not happening, you might want to examine yourself. Because God did not call us to live a life of faith that's unassuming. Goes under the radar. We're not in China. We're not in Sudan. We're not in Afghanistan. We're in the United States, where you have freedom of faith to express your faith. And the government cannot come against you for it. We're not to live an unassuming faith. 
You know, when people cuss around me, they apologize. You know, they slip. Bleep. Sorry, Tim. I used to say, don't apologize to me. I don't say anything now. But it brings me great joy what they do. Not what they cuss, no. It brings me great joy when they say, sorry, Tim. You know why? Because they're seeing something in me that I want them to see. That's causing them to rethink what they said. Because they know it is inappropriate around me. That validates that I'm projecting something. And I've been called a Bible thumper. I've been called a religious nut. I've been called, oh, you're one of those people. Praise God, I am. All those things. Let me tell you why. <laughs> but you're going to face that. And sometimes you're going to go, where is this coming from? It's out of left field. No, it's not. It's all planned. It's all tactical. But rejoice in it. Because they're coming against you because they see something in you that reminds them of how they ought to be. And they're not going to be happy until they tear you down. But praise God. Because they can't. They can't tear you down. Because you serve a mighty God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. But at the same time, we are not to suffer as one who is a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. In other words, one cannot say they are suffering for Christ if they firebomb an abortion clinic. That's against the law. That could take an innocent life, the very thing that you're protesting. You see, sometimes in the Christian faith, we get our wires crossed. There was a story of a, it's not a story, it's a true life. When, when gay marriage was approved by the Supreme Court, people rushed to courthouses to get gay marriage licenses. And there was a lady who worked for a county court who refused to give a marriage license to a gay couple by virtue of her faith. She was wrong. You know why? Because she worked for the government. It wasn't her call. It wasn't within her authority. It wasn't her position to say who can and could not get a marriage license. Does she have to agree with it? No. Did it compromise her faith? Maybe. But she was in no position to make that decision. And when she was fired, people were in an uproar. She's being persecuted for her faith. No, she's being persecuted for a decision she didn't have the authority to make. Understand what I'm saying. If she was a cake maker and someone came in and forced her to build a cake for a gay wedding, that's different. That's her business. And she has the right to refuse anyone service, especially when there's four other cake makers on the same block. Then I can agree with you that she is being persecuted for her faith. 
but not when you impose your faith in a governmental system. If you can't deal with that, then find another job. And the one that we need to kind of take a hard look at is the term meddler. What's a meddler? What is that? The word used here by Peter is only used here in this segment of text within the New Testament. And it likens to a bishop who has involved himself, involved himself or herself into the affairs of other people. And when they're rebuked for doing it, they claim persecution. Nobody in the church of God should be a meddler. You can, t you can tell who a meddler is. They're about 10 feet standing away listening to your conversations and then will inject themselves into it. Or you find them in your business and you never invited them in your business and they're telling you what you should and shouldn't do. Brothers and sisters, we're not to be meddlers in other people's affairs. And when you rebuke for doing something like that, you're not being persecuted. You're being rebuked for what you're doing. And so that's not how we're supposed to suffer. This is what Peter is making out. Don't suffer as an evildoer. There were people back in the time of Peter's letter who had a corrupt life, and they were running to the Colosseum to be persecuted to absolve themselves of the life that they lived. It's a little complex, but understand, that's not what Peter is saying. And that's why he's saying what he's saying. But if anyone does suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let them glorify God in that name. But when we do suffer, we can't be ashamed. You know, back in Peter's time, when he wrote this letter, the term Christian, in fact, how many of you know how many times the term Christian is used in the New Testament? Three times. Two as identifiers, one right here by Peter himself. The reason being is the term Christian was not a term of endearment at the time of Peter's letter. It was a label, and it wasn't a good one. Oh, those are Christians, those that follow Christ. It wasn't a term that we likened it today. And when the term was used, Peter had seen people become ashamed. Now, what does that word ashamed mean? It, it, again, we have an English word in the Bible. We need to understand what it means in the Greek. You know what it means? It means to shrink from him. It means to back off. It means to pull back so that you're not identified. You know, Peter knows this full well, doesn't he? That's what he did in the courtyard. He shrunk. He shrunk under persecution, individual persecution. You're one of them. You're, you're the one that walked. No, not me. Mm -mm. Three times. He shrunk. We're not to shrink. Albert Barnes said this about it. We are not to be ashamed for our union with Christ so as to not suffer for Him. We do this, don't we? We've done this, haven't we? Where our identity of Christ is met with hostile intent or some kind of pressure. And what do we do? We kind of pull back. Right? We don't want to be excluded. We don't want to be earmarked. We don't want to be labeled. We just kind of pull back. 
Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And you know, on the surface of this verse seems a bit difficult to understand, given the word judgment, right? But judgment has different contexts as to how it's being applied. And Peter's applying it in this context. It means the severe trial which would determine your character. In essence, another testing Another testing. And so Peter is using this word in a way that shows that suffering is coming, and it is suffering that will test them. That's what that word judgment means in that context. And you know, we see throughout all God's word that he uses trials and sufferings and, 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 and persecutions to draw his children back to him. It's consistent throughout the word of God. It's played out over and over again in its history. When things are going well, people forget God. When we live plenty with having sufficient funds and money, we forget God. When we have security, nice home, we forget God. When we have plenty of food, hmm, we're not lacking for anything, we tend to forget God. And when we have plenty of time, we fill them with interests and hobbies, and we forget God. But when things turn difficult, we return to God, and we cry out. You know, I don't have to go into the Bible and find a story for this or an example, because we are our own example. We have all done this. And I'm not judging, I'm just saying there's nothing new under the sun. We all have the same sinful nature. Self wants what self wants. And when things are going well, we forget God. And this is why God uses trials and sufferings and discipline to bring us back to him, to put the focus back on him. But you know what it also shows us, especially in our prayer life, is that our prayers are filled with nothing more than requests. Yes, that is a part of prayer, supplications and requests. Make them known to God. But prayer is also sitting, meditating, praying to the Father in an intimate communication that develops our faith. When we forget God because we have everything, that means our prayers are filled with things that we don't have, prayers and supplications. They're not part, there's no meditation, there is no closeness, there is no conversation with God. And God uses trials to bring us back. It is essential to 
to the life of the believers in order to refine us, these trials, this suffering, this testing of our faith. But what about for those who do not believe? What about them? If our suffering is not in vain, then theirs must certainly be. For suffering for unbelievers is sorrow upon sorrow, and it yields nothing but more sorrow. It has no point. It has no purpose. It has no work. It has no benefit. It produces nothing. Yes, some can come to Christ through suffering. Praise God. When we see those who are suffering, it's a great opportunity to minister to them. But if the gospel is not received by them, in the midst of their suffering, the ultimate end is more suffering. And it's tragic. And it's heartbreaking. And it should motivate us to continue to share that gospel and to pray for them. Pray for the Holy Spirit to intervene in their life and work in their heart. Absent of the Holy Spirit, you can't be saved. It's not a logical argument. It's not, a, it's not knowledge. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. So if the judgment of suffering benefits the believer, then the suffering for an unbeliever judges them eternally. And that's tragic. But in verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, Peter is quoting Proverbs eleven thirty one, But what is he saying here? Why is he saying that? And again, Peter leaves us with a bit of a need for doctrinal clarity as it relates to soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. Peter is not saying that salvation from God is difficult for him to accomplish. Nothing is difficult for God the Father. And there is no one who is unsaved that he can't save by virtue of his will. Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who does it. It's not your convincing argument. It's not your Romans road. It's not your Romans road. It's the Lord's Romans road. But by virtue of sharing the word of God and planting the seed, it's got to take the Holy Spirit to take that and to move it in their life. What Peter is saying is when you look at what believers, what Peter is saying is when you look at what believers endure through the process of salvation and progressive sanctification, seems impossible, doesn't it? And absent of the Holy Spirit, it would be. For there are many temptations. There's many conflicts. There's many pitfalls. There's many sufferings. There's many trials that you are going to go through because of your faith. And for people looking on the outside in, they're going, I want none of that. That's why Demas left Paul. Mm-mm. No, this is getting too hard. One stint in jail is good enough for me. And he left. So Peter is saying that when one looks at those who are saved, it seems as though they're scarcely saved because it would appear that the deck is stacked against them. But remember what Christ said, as reported in Matthew. Jesus looked at them. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. So 
So if then we are scarcely saved, what chance do those that are ungodly have? The answer is none. In fact, there's no hope apart from Christ. And again, that's really tragic. And so what will become of them? Well, the Bible is very clear. You don't hear a lot of churches talk about this, but they're going to be judged. But those that don't believe, don't accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will be placed in eternal suffering. Now, I think that's kind of ironic. And not in a humorous way. How suffering can be used to draw us to God and give us eternal rewards and inheritance, but for those who don't accept Christ, it will be one of separation and loss. That's why it should motivate us to share this gospel even if we suffer for doing it. I would rather suffer in this life at the hands of those who reject me and the message of the gospel than to live an easy life with no conflict in sharing the gospel. I would rather offend them in love than allow them to enter into eternal suffering, never hearing and never seeing the need for Jesus Christ in their life. I, you know, I think that's what hinders us from sharing the gospel. I hear it all the time. It's the fear of rejection. No, I don't think it's the fear of rejection. I think it's the fear of conflict. We don't want conflict. Maybe we should set aside our fear of conflict for the salvation of their souls. Never be careful in sharing the truth in love for fear of rejection. Truth hurts, but truth saves. Verse 19, Therefore let us, those who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter now concludes his theme of suffering with a challenge. Where do you place your trust in times of suffering? Who do you turn to? Instinctively, left unto ourselves, we would turn to the world because that's what we know. That is what the Israelites did in the desert, where they clamored for the return to Egypt, where their pots were full, even though they were enslaved. They were willing to return to that slavery just for the conveniences of food and shelter and water versus trusting in God for their provision. We do the same. When suffering comes, we tend to retreat to what is familiar. We tend to retreat to what is known, what, we're, what we know how to navigate. Versus trusting in the Lord's provision. Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. In other words, don't go back. There's nothing there that's good. You see, trusting in something requires faith. 
And faith, as we know in Hebrews 11.1, 1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Trusting in the Lord requires a step of faith into the unknown, uncharted territory, uncertain future. That's why in the flesh we run from it, because we want what's familiar. We want to go back to what's known. Praise God we don't do that. The Bible encourages us to never do that, to never return to that. Trust requires us to look beyond ourselves, beyond what you can see, outside of your comfort zone. Take a faith-filled risk and follow the Lord where He's leading you. He's never going to steer you astray. He's never going to lead you to destruction. It's always going to be for a future and a hope. Trust in Him. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart. Do not lean unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Who are you trusting in the midst of trials and testing? I pray it's the Lord Jesus Christ and not the world because the world can do nothing for you. It's creating it. It's not going to solve it. So this morning, in Peter's, in the text that we've examined, these are the lessons that he's showing us. Let us therefore not be surprised, but be prepared by the persecution that will come. Let us rejoice in our union with his suffering and for his glory. Let us be blessed when we do, and never as an evildoer for doing good. And let us not pull back or shrink in the face of suffering. And let us put our full trust and faith in Him. In a few minutes, we are going to celebrate the Lord's table. And if you look at what Christ was asked to do, only because of Christ could that be fulfilled. We all would have ran the other way. But Christ ran to the cross. He received the cross with joy in his heart because he, know, he knew what he was going to do. And he was going to redeem you and me. And we celebrate the Lord's table as a reminder of what Christ did and is doing in our lives. And so let's take just a few moments and just quietly in prayer as we prepare for the Lord's table, examine our hearts and ask the question, whom do you trust? Whom do you put your trust in? Let's pray. Communion stewards, if you please come forward.